Here we are. We're uh, closing out our uh, series on fear tonight. Um, I, it's been, I've, I don't know about you, but I've just really, I've enjoyed preparing this, this series. It's, it's forced me to uh, think about what are the things in my life that I fear, that grip me, that paralyze me. And so I hope it's been an encouragement to you. And we're going to close it out tonight with uh, the fear of insignificance. This one's maybe a little bit, uh, I don't know, I, I think it's familiar to everybody. So let me, let me tell you a quick story of when I first felt this um, reality, because it, it honestly was my young adult years. It was my very first job out of college. And I took a job in ministry, and it was not in my hometown. I was the new guy in town, but I, I felt like I was, pre- I was pretty well prepared for this. And so I went into it, and within about, oh, I don't know, maybe a year or two, um, I realized that I was really frustrated and I did not like my job. And when I look back on it, it was, maybe it was because my bosses told me, Andy, if you don't change this, this, and this, we're not going to renew your contract in six months. Because uh, I did have that conversation with my boss. Uh, and maybe it was because I wanted to see that I was actually doing something, that I was making a difference. And in the world of ministry, that means I want to see, you know, these kids at the time, these middle school, high school kids love Jesus. And to be honest, the, the job that I had, I didn't see a lot of that. I saw them coming to club every week and then I didn't see the fruit of what I was trying to teach. I did, I, and it was just this grind on me. And weekly, every single week of my first job, I was asking, why am I doing what I'm doing? It doesn't make any difference. Because deep down inside of me, I think is a common voice that we all have, and that is I want to do something that matters. I want to actually spend my days not just working for a paycheck, but working to do something to make, whether, even if it's not ministry, to make the world a better place. And as I got older and I started looking back on that season, I realized that my frustration of my first job And let's be honest, in a lot of ways, the failure of doing that first job in the first two or three years, because I was not a good boss. I was not a good, I mean, it was, and here's why. Because this need for significance was so strong inside of me, it made me an incredibly insecure and selfish person to work with. Because every battle I had to win because I was young, I was inexperienced, and I wanted the people that were my bosses to know that I deserved the job that I got. And I want, I want to run this thing, and if it's going to go good, it's going to be because of me, and if it goes bad, it's going to be because of me. It's all going through me. Because ultimately, what I wanted was I wanted everyone to know that I matter and that I'm good at what I do. And after a couple of years, I really wrestled with, like, I'm not seeing the fruit. And I... And, Thank goodness my mentor pointed it out to me. He said, Andy, I wonder if you're more worried about your glory than God's glory. <laughs> because the world that I came from, um, the camp world and, and the parachurch ministry world, like I wanted to be known. And I wanted to be known as a guy that could lead well and teach well and disciple well and also do really funny skits at the same time and plan trips well. I wanted to, I wanted to do it well. And never once did it dawn on me that I was actually doing full-time ministry for my glory. I wanted people to think well of me. I wanted my reputation to precede me. 
And I'm not saying that we shouldn't want to do a good job. I'm not saying that at all. We should want to do a good job. But what I'm saying is I think underlying in all of us as human beings, we want to matter. We want significance. We want to wake up every day and say, you know what? I'm not only going to a job that I love. I'm going to a job that matters. I'm living a life that matters. I'm living a life of significance. And I mean, if you guys read it all or, or do any research on your generation, which I don't know if you do or not, but I do a ton of it because I'm not one of you. I'm very fascinated by the young adult generation. So I look at a lot of things. And here's some of the things that, here's some of the phrases that I found when it came to your generation. And sorry, I'm gonna use the M word. I know you don't like that. Millennials, they want to matter. Millennials care more about the purpose than the paycheck which I don't know if that's true, is it? Uh, paycheck's pretty important. They are the purpose-driven generation. The Society for Human Resource Management did a survey. 94% of young adults want to use their skills to benefit a cause. And 57, almost 60% wish that there were more company-wide service days. And you can find these stats all the time. Your generation is known in academic circles, in social circles, in political circles, in religious circles, as the cause generation. You wanna do something, you wanna matter. Well, guess what? I'm about to burst your, your, your bubble as a generation. You're not the only ones that wanna matter. Because there was another survey done by the Imperative Group that surveyed 26,000 LinkedIn members of all ages. And here's what they found. The survey results show that the sense of, deep, uh, of purpose deepens the further along you are in your career. 48% of baby boomers said that their purpose in working is more important than their paycheck. 38% of Gen X said that the purpose is more important than their paycheck, and only 30% of millennials said that. So here's what we have. We have two different conflict, conflicting re results, but the underlying result is everybody wants significance. We all want to do something that matters. We don't want to spin our wheels day in and day out. And so the question then becomes this. How do you or we define significance? You ever thought about that? Like you, we say, I want to do something that matters. Well, what matters? What is actually defining significance for you? Because I think if we did a survey in this room, we'd probably get... A, couple dozen different answers to what is the definition of significance. Maybe a better question for you and I is who is defining significance for you? Because we've all been influenced by parents, family, friends, culture. What actually defines significance for you? When you get discontented with your job or your situation in life or your relationship status, why? Who has defined for you what you should be doing? what you should be feeling and what you should be experiencing. I don't know about you, but I, that's a, I've never really thought about that. And honestly, until this week when I started prepping, like who defines these things for you? Who defines them for me? Because at some level, we gotta figure out who is your audience? Who are you living for? Who's your audience? Because the underlying truth here, and this is something I had to 
uh, come across this week in my own life, is when it comes to significance, the underlying truth of the fear of insignificance is that it actually reveals our worship of people and their opinion of us. That's what this fear is. The fear of insignificance is just a mask of worshiping our reputation and what people think of us. And so you take that another step. What the fear of insignificance is, is a fear and a worship of people. What they think of me. Well, what if I don't do what they think I should do? Some of you in this room know, like, I know exactly what that feels like. Because every time I go home, I get, I get the ride act from my parents. I get the questions from my grandparents and my brother and, you know, my, my sister's doing that. I'm not doing that. I think this fear of insignificance is masking a different thing, and that's an idol of people, that we worship what they think of us. But before we get into this anymore, I want to give two warnings on the front end of this, because I do believe, and I want to highlight these two things, that there are two lies, or we could call them epidemics, that we live under daily without even knowing it, that I believe heighten this fear, and on this, at the same time undermine what God is trying to accomplish in your life. And this is what they are. Beware of the epidemic of the epic. Beware of the epidemic of the epic. Guys, we live in a world that says everything should be epic. I mean, can we be honest just for a second? Like, just you, we're here. We all know each other. We're friends. How many of y'all, I I want some honesty. Raise hand here. How many of y'all have spent more than five minutes preparing an Instagram post before? Right? Because we want our breakfast to look epic, right? We want that sunset, we, it's beautiful, but you know, I gotta change the filter so the colors are a little bit brighter, right? And then we hashtag no filter, <laughs> right? Because we, we, are, we are caught in this world of it's all gotta be epic. It's all gotta be epic. And the, and the lie here is that if it's not epic, then it's not worth doing. If it's not epic, you have somehow failed. That's the world we live in. And here's the consequence of the, of the epic, is that we cease to appreciate and be present in the seasons of the anonymous, the obscure, and the ordinary. When all we're looking at is epicness, we cease to appreciate and value the seasons of the ordinary. Because young adults, I don't know if you know this yet, a lot of you do know this, but the ordinary adult life will hit you square in the face very quickly. And you realize, oh, my life isn't like, it's not super Instagram worthy. Like I, I get up and I, I lay in my pajamas for half a day on Saturday. Like I'm, it's, there's nothing epic happening on Saturday morning. So we gotta be aware of the epidemic of the epic. The second thing is we gotta be aware of the epidemic of the immediate. That if it's not happening now, it will never happen. And that if it's not happening now, something must be wrong. Like, you know, you've heard me talk before. I love Amazon Prime. I've used it three times in the last week. And it's awesome. But I think that also bleeds into this epicness. That not only does it have to be epic, it has to be right now. That the season of my life that I'm in has to be amazing right now or else something's wrong. Newsflash. Real life 
looks a lot more like the ordinary and the obscure and the anonymous. And I hope tonight you're gonna walk away encouraged that God works in the seasons of the anonymous and the obscure and the ordinary. That's where he works. God does some of his best and most important work in the anonymous, the obscure, and the ordinary seasons of our lives. Guys, just look at his track record. Just open his Bible, and right at the beginning, you see Noah, who alone found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He, t- he, he toiled for 120 years, performing the seemingly unnecessary and unimportant work of building the ark. Moses, having grown up in Pharaoh's presence, fled to the desert until he was 80 before God visited him, taking him from obscurity to greatness. King David was anointed as a young man, but he did not assume the throne for over a decade. And most of his life was spent running, hiding in caves, and living in the wilderness in obscurity. Joseph was his father's favorite son, clearly chosen by God. He was sold by his brothers into slavery, thrown into jail, forgotten for years. And he spent years in an Egyptian prison wondering if he'd ever get out until one day God brought him out, placed him in a position of power and saved his whole family. Elijah was hidden by the brook of Cherith. He remained camped there in the company of the birds, which God used to feed him. And much to his frustration, the stream dried up, but God had used it to ready Elijah for the next phase of his life. John the Baptist Spend most of his adult life in the wilderness, no distinction, no prominent place of ministry, no acceptance by the masses, only years of silence, solitude, and obscurity. The Apostle Paul, he was educated above the common man with a resume that secured prominence for him. He went from being in the company of the Sanhedrin to escaping town in a basket under the cover of darkness. And Jesus lived an ordinary life for 30 years. And then on, in 30, on his 30th birthday or something, the Spirit of God led him to the wilderness for 40 days. Do you see a theme here? There's a theme all through from the beginning to the end of Scripture that God uses the, the seasons of obscurity and the ordinary and the anonymous to prepare his people not to punish them. Because some of y'all in this room think, God is punishing me for things I've done in the past because my life is boring and ordinary. And because I'm not getting that job and I'm not making that kind of money and I'm not living there or I'm not dating them, that God's punishing you somehow. No, that is not what we see in Scripture. What we see in Scripture is God is preparing, not punishing. And so instead of hating the season of the ordinary, instead of getting frustrated with the obscurity at your job, Prepare yourself to be prepared by the Lord for his work. Because there are, all, there are certain things that can only be done in the anonymous. There are, only, there are certain things that can only be done in obscurity that will prepare you for what God has next for you. Because guys, you're building a life. You're just beginning. You're building it. And some of you want it to happen right now. I want to be big. I want to be rich. I want to be successful. I want to be significant right now. And those options are not on the horizon for you. I know I felt that way many times in my life. What am I doing? God, did I make a mistake? Did I take the wrong job? Did I move to the wrong city? Am I dating the wrong person? 
Those questions will always come. But what I want to do tonight is I want to look at a text that reassures us in these times of obscurity and anonymity. Because we can't get caught up believing that our lives have to be insta-worthy to, be, to matter. Or that it has to happen now. Or it will never happen. You see, God, I believe, is more interested in doing something in you than he is doing something through you. He's got to start here before he sends you out there. And there are just certain things that he cannot do in here unless you're in a season of ordinary. So tonight we're going to talk about the fear of insignificance and that our significance comes from three things, cultivating our hearts, embracing our place, and faithfully stewarding our lives. One last thing before we get into our text, and if, you're, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 16. As you turn there, I want to make one thing clear. Your significance comes from your creator. Think about this. Have you ever spent nine months making something? Have you? Like actually getting all the pieces and it took you nine months to put them together. I doubt any of us have ever done that. But God took nine months to put every little piece of you together. It wasn't microwaved in 30 seconds. It wasn't even one month or six months. It was nine months God put you together in your mother's womb. Your significance comes from your creator, not from his creation. Because that's what we do. We try to produce and achieve so that his creation will give us significance. And the Bible tells me these two things. You have value and worth and significance because you are created in the image of God, number one. And two, God doubled down on your significance. He doubled down on your worth at the cross of Christ. Where he said, making you is not enough. I want to save you because I want you to be mine. The sin in your life does not allow you to be with me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to send my very own son to die on the cross for you to make things right so that you and I can be back together. He reconciled us with the blood of the cross because my sin separates me from Jesus. It separates me from God. And so Jesus came and said, you know what? You're so significant to my father and you are so significant to me and you are so valuable that I'm going to die for you so that we can be one. So if there's anybody in here that is contemplating things that are unthinkable, that says, I don't, I don't matter, I'm not significant, my worth is zero, guess what? That is a lie from the pit of hell because in and of yourself as a creation of God, you are infinitely valuable. So tonight we're going to look at 1 Samuel 16. How's that for a transition? Here we go. Let's read. Verse 1. Oh, before we get, just real quick, what's happening here is King Saul has screwed up royally. He's the first king of Israel. He has disobeyed God, and God has said, Saul, you're out. You're fired. Samuel, go to Bethlehem, the house of Jesse. I've got my next king on tap. Go find him. And this is where we find ourselves in, in 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, how, will you grieve, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. 
for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you I have, and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Verse three, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Verse four, Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Verse six, when they came, he looked on Eliab, the oldest son, and thought, surely the Lord anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Jump down to verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are, the, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. From that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the story of King David being anointed as the next king of Israel. And I love this story because David, one, is really young. Number two, and we're gonna get to all these in a second. I just wanna give you a little preview. Number two, he's not famous when God calls him. In fact, let me just say this real quick. I think in our world, famous means significant. That if I could just make it, if people would just know my name, that would mean I'm significant. Let me ask you this. How many celebrities do you know that have played a significant role in your life? They don't. They're insignificant. Now, if we handed a microphone around this room and I said, who's the most significant person in your life? Guess who they're going to be? Ordinary people who have loved you and cared for you really, really well. And so let's just toss out this notion that fame and significance have anything to do with each other. So my first point tonight is this. A life of significance comes from cultivating your heart. Let's look at verse six and seven once again. He said, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or in the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. A life of significance comes from cultivating your heart. You see, Samuel was just like you and I. The first thing we see is someone's looks, how tall they are, how short they are, how beautiful or handsome they are, how dressed they are. That's what we see. We typically cultivate our appearance. Like we're not gonna do the raise of hand thing, but there's a lot of us who spend way more time daily getting cultivating this than we do cultivating this. I prepare my hair every morning 
That's about it. But some of y'all, it's our culture, right? We have to make this all acceptable. We spend buku bucks on products and clothes to cultivate our appearance. How much time are we spending each morning and each evening cultivating a heart after God's own heart? Because that's what God saw in David. He didn't see his looks, because Eliab was the man, tall, dark, and handsome. And he said, no, 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 that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for this. So young adults, a life of significance comes from cultivating your heart. 1 Samuel 13, 14 is a very famous verse that says, the Lord has sought a man after his own heart. You see, Saul, who God had rejected as king, his heart had become about his glory and listening to outside voices for his significance. That's what we see in 1 Samuel chapter 15. He's letting other people define and speak to him and make decisions for him. He's listening to outside voices. My question is, who are you listening to? to get your significance? Who are you listening to to find your worth and your value? Because man, I'll tell you that the world that we live in tells you that your significance is pretty much wrapped up in things that are unattainable to most of us. And all of a sudden we walk away feeling like a total failure because who you're listening to, who you live for, who your audience is, this will inform how you live your life. Verse seven says that God looks at the heart, but man looks at the appearance. Just like Eliab, the world wants tall, dark, and handsome. God wants faithful, attentive, and humble. Are we cultivating a heart that is faithful, attentive, and humble? Because don't, don't, don't fool yourselves. You're cultivating something. I'm cultivating something. We're all cultivating something in our hearts. What is it for you? Have you ever thought about that? If your heart was a garden, what are you growing? What are you feeding it? What are you pruning? What, do you, what weeds are you consistently plucking out of your life so that your heart will be cultivated for the things of God? Because I don't you, you've heard me talk about my, my uh, flower garden in my house. Man, it gets out of control fast. Like, you gotta be on it. I just love how God says, no, I don't care what David looks like. I looked at his heart, and his heart is for the things that I'm about. And so I'm going to take him from where he's at, and I'm going to place him where I want him to be. As we cultivate a heart that is after the heart of God, you will find yourself already in places where God is working in significant ways. My second point tonight is that a life of significance comes from embracing your place. Embracing your place. Verse 11 says, Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And Jesse said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. Where was David when the prophet of God came to the house? He wasn't even invited. They didn't even think that David might be the guy he's, don't, no, don't bother David, he's, no one wants David. He's young, he's tiny, 
He's I'm sure his eyes are beautiful, but like no one, no one really wants to talk to David right now. He didn't even get invited. Talk about feeling insignificant. A prophet of God has come to your house and you're not even invited amongst your family. And I think sometimes this is why I love, this is particularly why I love this story. Because I think so often we don't want to be where we are. We want to be more known. We want to be more powerful. We want to have more tangible impact. We don't want to be where we are. We want to be in the next place. This is, you know, the grass is greener mentality. One of my pastor friends said today, but guess what? The grass has still got to be mowed over there too. Like it's not all just wonderful without effort. But David is where he was told to be. And so I wonder what it would look like if we embraced our place. What would it look like for you to embrace the job that you have that you don't like? What would it look like for you to embrace the singleness in that season that you're living in right now instead of complaining about not wanting to be single? What would it actually look like to embrace it and say, let's do this. God, what do you got for me? And we hit it head on instead of reluctantly and regretfully. Always reminding ourselves that I just wish I wasn't here. You see, David was busy tending his sheep. He was given a job and, and he was doing that job and he was faithful in tending to the insignificant. He was tending and faithfully doing so in the invisible and in the obscurity of a field. And that is when God tabbed him for his next project. Christine Kane has a great quote. She says this, where was David when he was summoned? Serving in obscurity. You are not forgotten or anonymous to God. He knows your name. And I get it. Many of you in this room right now think, God has forgotten me. I'm in a cubicle in the back of the office. If I didn't show up, no one would know, <laughs> right? It feels like you're in obscurity. But God has not forgotten you. He knows your name. Because guess what God does in the season of obscurity and anonymity and in the season of the ordinary? He is preparing, not punishing. He's preparing you. Again, what if we embrace that mentality? God is preparing me right now. I don't know for what, but I'm, he's preparing me. Because God does not waste seasons of our lives. He's not waiting for you to get your stuff together. He's not waiting for the better version of you. He knows you and he sees you and he loves you. He's forgiven you. And so if you're in that season of insignificance, of ordinary, of the anonymous, be patient. Trust him. He has not forgotten you. He knows your name. John 12, 24, Jesus says this, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This is that whole idea of dying to ourself. Sometimes we hold on so hard to what we think should happen and when it should happen and how it should happen that it doesn't happen. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, listen, that grain of wheat is useless unless it dies, and then it will bear much fruit. 
Some of us in here need to die to ourselves in terms of expectation and timelines and expectations of significance. Some of us need to die to the definition of significance that you have clutched onto, that was given to you by your family or your siblings or your grandparents, that they have dumped this significant expectation on you. You see, God is with you and is working where he has placed you. Therefore, you have everything you need for a significant life right where you are. David was in the field, tending his sheep, uninvited to the party. And that's exactly where God prepared him and chose him and trained him. Number three, a life of significance comes from stewarding your resources. Let me add a couple words to this, faithfully. Stewarding your resources faithfully. The very resources that God has entrusted to you. Let's watch how David does this. Let's flip over to one chapter, verse, chapter 17, verse 34. This is the story of David and Goliath. Watch how David stewards the resources that were forged and prepared in the obscure. Watch how he takes what he learned in the anonymous season for the moment God has called him to. Chapter 17, verse 34. Or th- let's go 32. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, I, mean, I love this so much. Your servant used to keep sheep. For his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him. And I struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. I love David. You see what he said? He's like, listen, I've been called for this moment. God has been preparing me for this moment. One of the small little details that we miss in this story is that when he says, when the lion or the bear would steal a sheep, I would go after it. How easy would it for him to be? He's like, I'm not doing that. It's just one sheep. No big deal. I'll just stay here. Enjoy. Enjoy the lamb chops. Right? He could have done that. He didn't. He was diligent and he was faithful and he worked hard in the anonymous. Even though no one saw it. He did what he was called to do, and he did it well, and he learned, and he grew, and he was prepared in the season of obscurity for the next season that God had for him. So young adults, do not waste this season complaining. Don't waste this season regretting. Don't waste this season just waiting for the next season. You've heard me say before, squeeze out of this season as much as you possibly can. Because God is using the season of obscurity and anonymity and ordinary to prepare you for your next season.
And that's what David did. He said, oh, I've been here before. I know this. That Philistine Goliath, he's nothing. I, I grabbed a bear by its beard and I stabbed it to death. Like, okay, go for it. Yep, you're good. You're our man. <laughs> like, David was like, he was confident. He didn't walk into camp entitled. If you know the story, he came to give his brothers food. He was serving. He was still serving. He didn't walk into the camp saying, hey, I was anointed 10 years ago um, by God Almighty to be the king of this place. And in fact, Saul, I'll take that throne, please. He didn't walk in entitled. He walked in humble, but he was ready. He was ready for the moment that God would call his number and say, hey, I have prepared you for this moment. Step into it with confidence and excitement, not complaining and entitlement. We hear echoes of the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. When we're talking about stewarding our resources, this parable very briefly is this. There's a master and he gives three of his servants money. And he goes away for a long time and he comes back. And the first two servants have made a profit on what he gave them. And the third one just buried it because he was afraid of screwing it up. And there's powerful words here. Jesus is teaching this. This is from the mouth of our Savior. Listen to what he says. He talks to the first two that took the money, put it to work, was faithful, stewarding what the master had given him. And he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with little. I will set you over much. Enter the joy of your master. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. You see, the first two servants were faithfully stewarding what the master had given them. The master wasn't there. The master wasn't watching. The master wasn't micromanaging. They were living ordinary, obscure, anonymous lives. And they said, I'm going to put it to work. And in that parable, here's the cool thing. The master doesn't say, well, how much did you make? And reward them accordingly. No, what does he say? What's the standard here? The standard is, well done, my good and faithful servant. That is it. That is the standard of significance to the master is faithfulness. Are we being faithful what the master has given us? Are we stewarding our resources well? The great theologian Bob Goff says it this way. We're not held back by what we don't have, but by what we don't use. Love that. It goes right along with that parable. It's not what you don't have. It's not using what we do have. It's not taking advantage of the season that you're in because we're complaining and just hoping for another season. Because God is using this season to prepare you for the next season. There's a purpose in the ordinary. There's a purpose in the anonymous. Does your life matter? Absolutely. Not just because God made you, but because he is using and working in you to prepare you. You see, the goal of life for the Christian is to be faithful, not significant. But when you are faithful, you will lead a life of significance. Every time. That's what we see in scripture. 
God doesn't call us to rain glory down on ourselves. And believe me, the gravitational pull to self-glorification in our world is strong. Look at me. Look at me. Put another filter on that. I'll look better. Make my eyes a little bit bigger in this picture. I'll look better. I'll wipe out the wrinkles on my forehead. I'll look better. Look at me. That's not what... God's word instructs us as, as followers of Christ to do. It says, look at Jesus. Paul says it this way, follow me as I follow Christ. We're constantly pointing people to Jesus, not to me. I, there's no hope in Andy Roshkal. There's no hope here. My hope is Jesus. So the goal of the Christian life is to be faithful, not significant. But when you are faithful, you will lead a life of significance. So here's my question. Are you being faithful, a faithful steward of what God has resourced you with? Have you ever thought about your life as, in, in terms of stewardship? Am I stewarding my life in a way that is honoring and pleasing to the Lord? Because I don't know about you, but one of my, my, my least favorite phrases of pop culture in the last 10 to 15 years is you be you. I, ugh. No, 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 I've tried that, and it does not end well. There's regret, there's pain, there's shrapnel when you be you. What God calls us to say is you be Jesus, follow Jesus, point people to Jesus, and you will live a life of great significance. The people in my life that have of the most significant uh, in my life are people that if I told you their name, you would never know who they are. You wouldn't know them because they're ordinary, regular people who are obedient, humble, and stewarding their resources well. What do I mean by resources? Your job is a resource. God has blessed you with employment. Your time is a resource. Are we using our time as good stewards? Are you stewarding your time in a way that honors the Lord? Your emotions, your relationships, your influences, your money, your opportunities, all these things are resources that every single one of us has. Are we faithfully stewarding those things? Because they're not mine. They have been given to me to steward and to handle. My kids are not my kids, they're God's kids. He has given me five little tiny people to steward. Do I see them as my kids or God's kids? Do I see my money as God's money that he is allowing me to steward? Saying, Andy, I'm gonna give you this paycheck. Do with it what you will, meet your needs, but honor me in doing so. Are we stewarding our time, our resources? So what does this mean? I just wanna offer three questions as we close. Maybe you want to write them down, job in your phone, as we go into 120 seconds here in a minute. But I want, to, I want you to ask God to show you what your heart is after. Ask God, what, what is my heart after, Lord? Show me. Reveal to me my heart. Because David was a man after God's own heart. Ask God, show me what my heart is after. Two, Ask God to empower you to embrace your place. 
And I, I use that word empower very strategically because I know it's difficult to be in a season that you do not want to be in. A situation that you want nothing more than to be out of. Ask God to empower you to embrace your place with anticipation, with excitement, and contentment. And thirdly, ask God to show you how to be a faithful steward of the resources he has given you and then move in obedience. Start viewing the things you have as God's things that he has loaned you to steward. Your time and your money and your relationships and your job and your neighborhood and your car, all the resources. Ask him to show you how to faithfully steward your resources. Because like I said, the goal of the Christian life is to be faithful, not significant. Our goal is to be faithful. And when you're faithful, you will find yourself living an incredibly significant life. And it will be one that is full of joy and contentment because there's no better place than knowing you're walking in the will of God. There's no greater joy. I can go through a lot of stuff, but if I know I'm being obedient and walking in God's will and under his gaze and he's saying, well done, good and faithful servant, then you know what, whatever, I don't care. Because what I want to hear is not how much did you produce. What I want to hear is, Andy, well done, good and faithful servant. So this is our series on fear. This whole series has been, I hope, encouraging, I hope, challenging. Um, I know it has been for me. But I love the song Nicole sang earlier about this is how we battle. Because fear is a battle. Fear is a battle. We battle our fears daily. Whether it's the fear of insignificance, whether it's the fear of the unknown, whether it's the fear of being alone, whatever fear grips you and takes hold of you and controls you, it is a battle. And this is how we fight. We remember the goodness and faithfulness and the sovereignty of God. That he is working in your life, even when you don't see it, even when you don't feel it. So we're gonna go to 120 seconds. And so this is just our, if you're new, this is our time where we just take two minutes just to reflect on what, was just, what you just heard from God's word. That a significant life comes from cultivating our hearts, embracing our place, and faithfully stewarding our resources. So let me pray for us as we go into our 120 seconds. God, I wanna thank you, God, just for the hope that you bring us through your word. God, just over and over and over that you are working in and through every season because you are good. And God, there is nothing on this earth that can overtake what you're trying to accomplish. So God, help us to be faithful. Help us to be patient. God, help us to desire your glory over ours. Help us to desire your will over our will. That one day, when we meet you face to face and the battle is over, you say, you say each of us by name and you say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Amen.